Again, the acapella isn't bad, but I sure missed the piano. You know, that psalm right out of our responsive reading talks about God being the one who does the healing and, and such, and yet we are constantly brought to the place of, of uh, looking to him for healings, you know, the people who have surgeries and all these other things, and why doesn't he do it, you know? Why does he bring hardships or poverty and such to his own? And uh, we were going through a devotion at the office uh, this week, and one of the readings mentioned kind of that, that same thought, and the picture was brought to our attention that, you know, had we had all, you know, the golden streets and, and all good life, how often would we lean, lean upon the Lord, you know? Without those hardships and trials, without the tears and the struggles, um, he would be a distant thought. And so we're thankful. Uh, we thank him for uh, the hardships of life. For by those, as James said, you know, there's maturity that's developed in our lives. So um, we, don't ask, we don't ask for them to come. <laughs> but Lord, when they do come, uh, make our eyes uh, upon you. John chapter 4 is our scripture reading this morning. John chapter 4, and I'll be reading the first 23 verses. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples, he left Judea, departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria, and cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied and, and with, his, with his journey, sat on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Then cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink, for the disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, ask us a drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him, a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. 
Jesus saying unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus saith unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast five husbands, and he to whom thou hast not, how hast, is not thy husband. It is in, in that saith thou way, thy way. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither worship in this mountain nor at Jerusalem. Worship the, Jerusalem, worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ, when he is come, he will teach us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. We thank our God for his word and pray his blessing upon it in our hearts and ears today. Let's pray. Father, in this portion of our worship service, we come to... Um, approach your throne of grace and humbly uh, seek your favor upon your word that as often as we may have even read this passage or read the scriptures that your spirit would have the ability and free course to bring to our heart's attention truths that we need to learn. Thank you for such a joy and privilege to be able to approach you boldly and yet humbly recognizing how, Lord, we are a needy people. Uh, as we uh, continue on in this life, we need such a living water to satisfy our thirsty souls. Even at this moment, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. If you're familiar with the Barna research, research Group, George Barna, does it ring a bell, anybody? He does surveys, and he's done it for many, many years now, Christian church types of surveys, uh, sometimes thousands and thousands of people. Um, and he brings forth a lot of statistics. And statistics can be kind of, uh, you know, boring at times, and yet they provide us with good information. Uh, most recently, there have been a number of ones that have been brought out specifically after we've gone through this past two years, church relationships and, and attendances and so forth. Um, let me throw out a couple of statistics for you. Half of all church adults say that they did not experience God's presence in the previous year. And this is in relationship to worship. Um, and when you, we're talking about evangelical churches in the broadest of senses. Two-thirds of all church adults cannot describe what worship is. A larger majority of those surveyed think of worship as a Sunday morning event. And again, the survey, this particular survey was taken 
before the coronavirus uh, struck uh, upon all things like that. Um, I've done some research in some other areas and in over the past two years, obviously for certain causes, there's been a huge uh, groundswelling of anything but this type of worship service. In other words, uh, online services, uh, the ability to go to uh, YouTube and watch the preacher that you like. And if you don't like what he's saying, you know, just turn him off and go to another one. You know, there's virtual church you know, and, and Zoom meetings and, and all types of things like that. Uh, so it presents us with an unusual picture of church and worship. As we continue this morning, what was your expectations as you came today? What were your expectations? I know many people come to church on Sunday for what is referred to as a spiritual refreshment. You know, Come to this place, indeed, as with all good churches, we would say, time where the worries and concerns of the worlds, the struggles that we've gone through for the past six days, are able to set them aside and be able to come here and say, boy, it is indeed a joy and a blessing. Gain a sense of peace, become re-energized, uh, gaining energy and strength spiritually in the presence of God and of other believers. And it's a nice thing to take place. Others come out of a sense of duty, coming to the church as a part of life. And we just don't feel right if you miss it. It's just something a kilter, you know? I, I, I just, I, I really, I just have to do it. Some, in one place of your life, you say, well, everything has been in turmoil. And when I come to church, it just kind of puts things in order. Some do it because of a sense of what we may call community, of being a part of something that's bigger than we are, me as an individual or as a husband and wife or as a family. Uh, coming to church allows me to say we're all part of this bigger picture and it makes me feel better. And we end up accepting people as part of something like this, warts and all. We're different. And we find great comfort in that. And then there are those who come because life is a mess. And they think by just coming, it's going to be better. It's just going to work out better. Although some of those reasons have value, none of them are appropriate entitlement of worship. None of them should be considered our reasons for Sunday worship. You see, there's a true difference, a huge difference, between attending church and worshiping. There's a huge difference between coming to church for worship and the principle of worship itself. We should come here today expecting, uh, quite simply, to worship. And because you are a worshiper, all the day long, in every place you go, you are part of worship, no matter what you do and no matter where you are. You are. Worship is our response to what we value most. And that's a general principle of what is worship. It's something that I value the most, and therefore my heart's attention is drawn to that. So whatever you value the most is what you worship. How do I know what I worship? It's easy. You simply follow the trail of my time and my affection, my energy, my money, and my commitment. And take all of those and put them together, and what I give my emphasis on is that which I 
worship. That trail will lead us to my answer. In countless churches around the world, congregations struggle with the question of what makes up appropriate worship. Many young people want something more contemporary, something more like that I'm in my particular time and place and space in the world around us. Other older folks defend the traditional forms of worship. A lot of churches have made huge changes into their format in order to attract a certain age group or in order to attract a certain economic uh, uh, strata. Today I want to look at the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And it's a marvelous story where Jesus comes and meets her, frank discussions of her particular status in life, what she was doing, what she was living, but more so to focus on the matter of Jesus reaching out to her and that reach was over the walls of her life and brought her to cause him to see who he was and becoming his her personal savior. More than that, though, we were going to look at these verses and see what Jesus reveals to her in important truths of the matter of what is worship. For Christ not only brought her to the realization that he was at living water, but was the relationship from that time on in, to, in that which is to him. So we begin by going back to our scripture in verses 19 and 20. Let me read that again. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. First of all, worship comes from a response of the heart, a response of the heart to the living God. The Samaritan woman, by the way, reacted to Jesus, helps us to see that worship has to do with real life. It's where Jesus met her in real life. And the understanding that she had with him developed to that picture that she needed to know him and that worship was after that. Jesus talked with her. He came to a place of the deep conviction of her sin, matter of all these husbands and the life that she was living in, hardly could have been more revealing. And it would seem that her ignorance of truth and her conviction of sin lend her to the realization that she needed to get right with God. And we've often used that statement, get right with God. But for her, that was the great reality that she was facing. She likewise realized that Jesus was a prophet. How could anybody know these things in my life other than somebody who was special? So she came to him bringing to these truths and wanted to understand the when and the where and the how of approaching God. In other words, he's revealed these things to me. I am those things. Yes, now how do I approach God? As the man of God that you are, she says to him. If my heart's not there, not humbly seeking my heavenly Father, then I've missed that step of worship. The entire approach of worship is from my heart. And we've talked about this many times. The, the place of my heart to my lips, the place of my heart to my life, into all the relationships, horizontally and vertically. It is that place. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 1.16, for by him, meaning God, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, 
whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. In other words, God created all things for his what? For his glory. We talked about this the past couple of weeks we were together. You know, The glory of God, the, 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 the focal point of all relationships. And he says, I've created you in order that you might glorify me. Simply put, if you were and I were made by him and for him, we exist for one purpose, and that's to glorify him, to worship him. And there the entire universe, as we remember from Psalm 19, 1 through 6, was created for the glory of God, for the purpose of worshiping him. And if we're not worshiping him, then we're not existing. <laughs> Simply put, we're not living. So worship begins in the matter of response of the heart to the living God. Secondly, verse 21. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh, when ye shall neither worship in this mountain nor at Jerusalem. Worship the Father. Secondly, worship is not limited to a specific location. Tim mentioned this in the Sunday school today. Kind of interesting, I hear this and he says, ah, he kind of knew what we were going to look at, you know. Uh, not in a particular location, but it's of the heart. Mount Gerizim, a little away from Sychar, was a mountain that the Jews built their temple on, uh, almost like the temple that was in Jerusalem. And Jesus said there's a time coming when worship will no longer be associated by a location, by a particular place. Remember, Coming to Jerusalem for the feast requirements for a Jewish male, like Passover and, 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 and so forth, was required of them. Certain times of the year, certain situations. And it is of the world's religions. We have sacred cities and sacred locations like the Vatican and like Mecca and like Salt Lake City. You know, we expect that participation in those places to be special. And there's special blessing by going there and participating in those things in those cities. We think of that as being foolish. And yet what have we done when we mentally think once we leave this place that we are not worshiping? That we've left a place of worship, that this is a place of worship when I've left here that I'm no longer worshiping God. One author said it this way, if you limit your worship to where you are, the minute you leave that place of worship, you will leave your attitude of worship like a crumbled up church bulletin. We're coming to church to worship. Okay, we get in here, we have the music, we, we turn off our cell phones and all electronic devices, you know. We focus on what's going on and participate through the bulletin, you know. And then the benediction is given, and then all of a sudden there's a quick zip, zip, and we're out, you know. There's two Roman Catholic churches, Millie and I, depends on which way we come, right in, near our house. And uh, there are times when they are jam-packed. And much like the church down the road here, they got a policeman out in order to stop all of the traffic, to get all the cars out Saturday nights, you know, or Sunday morning certain times, and then that's it. Because they've punched the card, they've filled in their particular duty at that time, and now everything is good. We can go on doing the business that we normally would want to do. Now, I know none of us believe that this particular sanctuary is special. 
now it is special in the fact that this is home church. Tithes and offerings go into it. Maintenance and upkeep, and we have come to participate here and, and have enjoyed this place. But does that mean once we leave this place, it's no longer a matter of worship? That's a dangerous thought. So worship begins within the heart as a response to God. It's not limited to a specific location. And thirdly, verse 22, you worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Verse 23, worship is as valuable as the one and the what our worship is based on. My worship is only as as valuable as my focal heart's attention. You see what Jesus said? He says, you worship, you know not what. It means you Samaritans, you woman of Samaria, don't recognize the truth. You don't recognize the, 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 the fullness of what's available to you. Now, he wasn't uh, bemoaning the Samaritans per se, but Samaritans only used the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. The Jews, they had not only those Pentateuch, but they had other books of prophecy, uh, other books of poetry. And that was the fullness of the Old Testament that was available unto them. She says, because you have a limited amount you worship, you don't know. Much of modern worship today demands that we become gentle and sensitive to be respectful for the religious beliefs of other people. You know, we shouldn't be harsh in criticizing those who don't necessarily believe the things that we believe. Only worship that is based upon the scriptures, though, is true worship. If it is our only source of faith and practice, then how we worship and what we worship is in the fullness of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. When we were in the Philippines, and I probably shared this with you before, there was a young uh, uh, pastor came over one day and he says, would you come and speak to our little prayer group? And so I went over and did it. And and, uh, as we were starting out in prayer and things just seemed a little bit different. Long story short, the only books that they used in their particular church were the books of Paul. They got rid of the Old Testament. They got rid of the John. They got rid of the, all, all, only the, the writings of Paul. You know, How do you get the fullness of the gospel? How do you get the fullness of the understanding of who God is by eliminating such? Jesus was not saying that every Jew worshipped more acceptably than the Samaritans, but that the Jews had a more complete understanding of the one they worshipped. They were able to see through what God had revealed unto them such truths. So it begs the question for us today, how well do we know the God that we worship? Are we satisfied with just that early stage, those initial thoughts? I remember working with a group that um, had the habit of saying in all of their prayers, in Jesus' name, irrespective of, that was always added on, and it just kind of caught my ear after time and time again. So I asked him, I says, why do you do that? Well, they kind of gave us the information. Uh, Jesus says, if you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. So they literally take those words in Jesus' name, have to be added on. No other possible way. I says, why? Well, I don't know. No other idea that the name of Jesus, what is the name of Jesus, you know? 
What does that include? Who is he? In, in all the whole encompassing, they, they were ignorant of it, but they were able to just take that little step and say, well, if I say these particular words, I've got all bases covered. Jesus hears me. But not understanding whatsoever uh, the things that are behind it. So here we have in John 4, Jesus shifting his heart's attention to this Samaritan woman and to us also. The place of worship, manner of worship, not where we worship, but how we worship. It's the fullness of that picture. Don't be ignorant of what our God is. Number four, verses 23 and 24, but the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Here we have that worship is all about the attitude of the heart. Jesus is saying that before he arrived here on earth, the picture of the proper place of worship was not complete. He was coming to put the end to the old ways, to make a fulfillment of that which was looked forward and desired to. The coming of Jesus, his death upon the cross, would put an end to Old Testament worship. So when Jesus died upon the cross and the veil of the temple was torn to access to the, the Holy of Holies was made available through Christ and not the sacrifice of the Old Testaments. So from now on, he says, true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. It's an interesting phrase, in spirit and in truth. Some people take it as saying, in spirit and in truth, when in fact, they are bound together as one complex picture, one complex thought. We must worship in spirit and in truth, the true coming together as one acceptable attitude. Worship is my heart and my head. This is what he says becomes acceptable. If it's all my heart, all of my emotion, all of a sudden I'm driven in a form of worship that we kind of indicate on some Pentecostal charismatic groups that is just a fly-by-night, all excitement and all emotion, and, and there's no substantial meat that's there. On the other side, if it's all head, we become cold orthodoxy with just statistics and facts and so forth, and have no feeling whatsoever. Jesus says true worship is a combination of both, the Spirit of God working through the truths of the Scripture and bringing them together in one beautiful picture that allows us to worship him as such. The word must in verse 24, and they that worship must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus isn't merely saying that it would be a good idea for people to do that way, but he's saying it is the only acceptable worship to God. What does he hear? What does he see? What is, is it in his approach? Here's something interesting. John, in his book, gives us three musts, and they're kind of key, I believe. Uh, John 3, 7, you must be born again. Initial stages in that relationship is being of salvation. John 3, 14, the Son of Man must be lifted up. In other words, here is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Must. And the third one in our passage here today John 4.24, worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And that's part of our text. The whole relationship, as John sees, is based, it's must to be saved 
in what Christ had done upon the cross be resurrected again, and then that relationship that we have with him is must that is bound together with him. So it's not surprising, the end of verse 23, it ends with the statement that the Father actually seeks individuals to worship him. He looks for that. You know, we hear the passage oftentimes repeated, Jesus saying, you know, you, Lord, Lord, haven't we, haven't we, haven't we done this, and haven't we? And, and Jesus turns to him, he says, I don't even know you. I don't, because they've approached him just by head, or just by heart, or just by ignorance. And it's all under the umbrella of worship, but he says, I don't know you. To make some applications, I think it would be important. If worship is so important in our lives, is there a way that I can improve it? Better lighting, different instruments, maybe a coffee. There was a church that I went to a number of years ago, and they had a, uh, in their, their foyer in the vestibule in the back, they had a coffee cart. And before the service would start, they would bring, bring it up, and you could get a coffee there. The seats were theater seats. Uh, there were no hymnals or Bibles because everything was projected on big screens up on the top. The pastor had a 20-minute uh, sermon that he would give, and it was 20 minutes because it was broadcasted on TV, and he had to do it that way. Uh, the pulpit came up from the floor and, and like this, and curtains were all over the place. You know, Did that make it a better worship? Did that improve the relationship that is there? Sometimes we think in such ways to improve it. I want to close this morning with four suggestions on how to offer God our best in worship. First, make your worship God-centered. You know, it's really not about me. It's not about you as an individual. Worship is all about him. Worship is not about us as individuals or as families or as couples. Have you ever left a service with a smile on your face and say, boy, I've really been blessed. I really feel God's ministered to my soul. He's filled me. Or have you left the service cranky and says, boy, that was a waste of time. <laughs> I didn't like the music and I didn't especially like he was what he was saying. It's just not worth it. It's because we've lost sight of something that's very important because primarily worship is not to my benefit. It's not for my good it's for God. It's all based upon my approach to him and what I pre present unto him. We may indeed benefit from participating in public worship, but it is not for us. We may set aside those things and say, that was good, that was profitable, and yet the worship has always been upon God. It's been for his glory. The question is, what do I get out of worship rather than what did I give God in my worship? You know, sometimes we do that. We'll leave and, and we go on out. He says, what, what did you get out of that? And the Lord sits there and says, what did I get out of what you presented? Sometimes it can be difficult not to focus on ourselves because we come so broken down and worn out by life. And we have needs. We approach a worship service. We approach a church and say, I am in need. I have so much that I'm looking to God for. How can he help me? 
But in worship, the aim is to lose ourselves and to let him fill us. For it's in worship that we forget ourselves and we find that he can restore us. It's true that we find ourselves re-energized in worship, but that's not necessarily the reason that we're here. If I come to him and he says, Lord, I am broken and I have needs, but I look to you and not necessarily a formulation of what we do through a worship service. I look to you to fill me and satisfy those needs. Just even not at that time, but even through the week ahead. So worship is God-centered. Secondly, prepare your heart beforehand. All of us see the necessity of making physical preparations. You know, we're not going to come in with our pajamas and, and you know, uh, cow's breath and, and uh, you know, little crumbs all over the place, you know. We brush our teeth, we shave, we comb our hair, shower, clean clothes, and we come in physically prepared. But what preparations have we made to be spiritually ready? Louis Gigolo says, most of my life I thought that you went to church to worship, but now I see the better approach is to go worshiping to church. If all of life is worship, in other words, if it's not located in a particular place, but if it's my response to a holy God for my redemption and for all that he's given me and my trust in him and all through life, then I come to this place as my approach to him in worship. As a part of that, determined that you're not going to arrive in the services frustrated and bent out of shape that is virtually impossible to worship. And the preparation at times can begin whenever it is during the week. We have a, the, the former pastor, and this is before they became Marcus Hook, Dr. A.L. Latham. Dr. Latham was the founder of the Sunday School program. They had over 600 vacation Bible schools around the world. And this was before the Christian, Christian school uh, events that occurred within the country. And uh, Dr. Latham, he had a number of children. I met the son, just a dear, dear man, um, gifted pianist, lovely preacher. Uh, but the one that we knew most was uh, uh, Miss Latham, who played the piano at, at the Chester Church. And she says, Papa would get us at night on Saturday night and quiz us um, on catechism questions and Bible verses. And obviously, this is at a time before television and everything else that went on, you know. Um, but he says that on Sunday morning, we did the same things, that, that mentally and spiritually, we were prepared to come into the Lord's house, that we had prepared ourselves of what we can to say, here, Lord, you know, what I'm, what I'm here to do is to worship you. And sometimes we have to recognize what preparation we can make to come to this place that, Oh, excuse me. You know, physically, you know, um, it wasn't the easiest. No, it was easy yesterday to turn those clocks ahead because, because we had a busy day and we were ready for bed, you know. But, uh, you know, sometimes we're physically not ready. Sometimes we're drained out. Sometimes we get all types of other things going on. He says, no, this is one day out of the week in order for me to receive the benefit of worshiping God with the fullness of my heart. Be ready. Be prepared. Do those things which are necessary to make such a preparation that my body and my spirit are right. Thirdly, listen carefully to what God is trying to say through his word. 
The word of God is as presented. I make no claims to be the best preacher, neither does Pastor Olson or Pastor Britton. But I tell you, there's work that's prepared ahead of time in God's word in order to present the word of God. And that is the preparation that is necessary for us to feed upon. Plan your week with that in your heart and mind. Come prepared to listen and pray for that. Pray for the pastor before he comes. Uh, pray for the message as it's presented. Um, uh, church down here at, at Marcus Hook, again, just to use him as an example, there's a train track that runs beside. And usually, not usually, at times, the train comes by just as some keen moment during a message, you know, you know, like that. And all of a sudden, you can just see minds go all over the place like that. You know. But pray that God would use that particular service that he would be able to uh, be feasting from it. And fourthly, determine to be a participant and not just a spectator. We watch football games, and now we're going to be able to watch baseball games. Yay! Uh, we watch concerts, and sometimes we approach church with that same attitude of watching an event, of watching something that's going to take place before I come and I'm going to sit and I'm going to enjoy it. Yet I want to challenge you today to try something different. I believe that the more you're involved in the service, listening to the words, the words of the singing even, and to pray that those who are leading the service would do well, I'm convinced that you'll be blessed more and more. That you don't evaluate a worship service like we evaluate a game. Well, that was a good game, or that was a crummy game, or that was a good concert, or we evaluate individual participants in the same way that we do other events that we pray for. The late D. James Kennedy defines what happens in most churches. Quote, most people think of the church as a drama, with the preacher as the chief actor, God as the prompter, and the congregation as the critic. What is actually the case is that the congregation is the chief actor, the preacher is the prompter, and God is the critic. God is the critic. Now we don't want to, we're not, you know, making a, a lowering God in, in, this, in this picture to be like us as human beings, but I think that's the closest that we can understand it. He views it because he is expecting his absolute best. He looks at his creation and it daily displays such a fashion that honors him. He looks at his word and he says, daily, this word presents unto me the glory that I deserve. And then he looks at his people and he says, you know, <laughs> what happened? You know, now, a lot of the Psalms that we read through and the, the term mercy is constantly before us. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He is long-suffering. He's patient. He's loving. He's kind. He doesn't deal with us as we would deal with us. You know, so he looks upon us with such a fashion and such a favor to work in such situations. Don't be a participant. We began this message with the statistics that 50% of Christians said that they didn't experience worship last year. I wonder if some of that is experienced because of false teaching, false understanding of what church is, false understanding of what worship is. The truth is that true worship is not measured by 
a level of entertainment. And I think, and we're not pointing fingers, but there are churches who purposely set aside worship as being a place of entertainment. I've sat in them. You know, somebody invites me. That's, <laughs> we want to come to church with me? Yeah. And it is a whole, oh, it's just because of the entertainment value. It's not because of my personal satisfaction. How satisfied was I? You know, one to ten, ten being the best, one, you know, just mark down how, how satisfied was I was with church today or my personal level of comfort. And comfort is obviously the physical aspects of it, but comfort in just how things have gone on. Do I feel comfortable with it? C.S. Lewis has it right when he states, the perfect church service would be the one we were mostly, we were almost totally unaware of, our attention would have been upon God. The perfect church service is not this horizontal part, what's going on around here, but my heart's attention is on God, which means it is my heart. It is preparation ahead of time. It is praying for and is meaningfully having that relationship and God be pleased with it. And just not here, but throughout life. And I think that's the movement of the church as we need to see it in uh, the days in which we live. They are critical times, uh, hardships. We talked in, in some months ago, going through Second Timothy, you know. Obviously, these are last days. Perilous times will come. We're living in perilous times. And they're going to get worse. Don't expect that it's going to get better. But in such a case, where are my eyes? Where are my eyes? Are they here, you know? You know, we can grumble. I had somebody tell me, just don't talk about the gas prices. You, you can go to Ukraine and see if you can find any gas at all. You know, the hardships and persecutions that are there. Uh, but our God is there and we worship him. Let's pray. Father, in our weakness and in our frailties and in our propensities to act more like uh, the man that we used to be instead of the man that you would have us to be, we come to you and humbly ask that we might draw closer day by day. Thank you for revealing yourself in Jesus Christ. Thank you for revealing yourself in your word. Thank you that such truths are not to be taken for granted, but they are to be feasted upon. And that our hearts would be sensitive to what the word says, just not as nice sayings or practical advice, but truths that change my footsteps and change my hands and my ears and my eyes, that move my heart in a direction of love and kindness that uh, Jesus portrayed in his own life, uh, to bring my heart's attention to the place of the lost, to be people of prayer, not only to pray for those who are lost or the particular health conditions that we've got, but that we would pray that we would honor you each day and whatever is necessary to prepare for a worship seven days a week. And we thank you for such a place as we have here, for the privilege of joining together as a corporate body and the kindness that's been shown to this congregation for these many years. May it continue to profit. Lord, may the worship that we present unto you be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. For it's in Christ's name. Amen.